I grew up in a town in Middle England that was so unremarkable that when McDonald's came to set up store, it was a major news story. Back in the 1980s, when McDonald's was just emerging on the other side of the pond, their arrival marked a watershed moment. The store was close enough to church that several of us choristers would skip down to get a milkshake before or after Sunday services. We would sit pride of place in the window seats, broadening our scrawny shoulders when people walked by, trying to convey how proud we were of ourselves to be on the inside of this elite club. As I said, this was Middle England in the 1980s. There were only three channels on the TV, and it showed. It was several years later when I ended working there during a couple of vacations from college. I can safely say that I have never worked anywhere before or since that was so thoroughly committed to being proofed for idiots. For instance, the McDonald's manual dedicates a full five pages to floor mopping. There are no less than three color-coded mops with their three color-coded detergents. Supervisors spend hours carefully scrutinizing mopping techniques and don't hesitate to jump in correctively to show you the McDonald's way. What I discovered through my mercifully brief sojourn at McDonald's was how labor like that does something to the soul. A gradual war of attrition, not because the work is hard, but because it dislocates people's labor from the persons they are on the inside. Karl Marx calls it the alienation of labor. I likened it to taking a really slow anesthetic. Ultimately, I was grateful to take the money and run, using it to travel around Europe with friends. Yet as we all know, the realities of economic life for so many is that they do not have the same luxury. Labor has certainly been in the news recently with the high number of job openings of the spring breaking through to an unprecedented 10 million this summer. Part of this trend has been the number of Americans voluntarily leaving their jobs in June, rising from around a typical 200,000 to just under a million. When asked what would motivate them to return to work, the vast majority name that they're looking for the opportunity to thrive and to care for and be with their families via livable wages and less rigid working hours. In other words, people in their millions are asking for a different kind of life to the one that keeps them indentured to low pay, little fulfillment, and not enough time to be with the very families they are laboring so hard to support when you work two, or in cases three jobs to make ends meet. Time around the dinner table at night only looks like a privilege other people have. Something clearly is wrong with the expectations we currently have of people often earning the least and working the most in today's economy. And those people are telling us that by their millions. It has not only been at the lower end of the wage and work pyramid that we are rethinking our working lives. For many, 
The past 18 months have seen seismic shifts in people's orientation to work, with folks not merely ditching the commute to work from home, but asking what their labor means to them altogether. It's an important debate for society to have, and we as the church belong in it to help that society imagine working lives for all that embody the values we celebrate in our baptismal covenant to honor and respect the dignity of every human being. That engagement of society is important for the church as institution. It also important is our engagement with one another as individuals. After all, work is personal. Not only do the vast majority of our waking hours get dedicated to our labor, so does an enormous amount of how it is we express and understand ourselves as human beings. Given that, each of us from time to time needs someone to ask us important home truths, to challenge us to discern if what we are doing with our lives is indeed a true reflection of who we want to be. Truth be told, though, most of us would rather not have that kind of bare-knuckled heart-to-heart, especially with someone we have to see again anytime soon. If we're honest about it, we'd much rather sit at the back quietly until they can figure it out for themselves. Yet when we do summon the will for more courageous conversations, we discover new ground opening up which hitherto was hard for us to clearly see. Sometimes we gain a new sense of what our lives could mean for ourselves. Other times, this new vision focuses on the greater good. And at particularly special moments of encounter, we're able to do both at once. As the woman did with Jesus in the gospel we hear from Mark today. The story inhabits numerous points of tension power struggles between men and women in the ancient Near East, the divide between Jews and Gentiles, the economic distance between Galileans and their more Hellenistic neighbors. Yet at the heart of the tension has to be the brief and pointed exchange between a desperate mother looking for healing for her daughter and the man with the power to help her. Listen to their encounter again, if you will. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about Jesus, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. The implication of this exchange is that the people of Israel are the children, and the dogs are non-Jews, the Gentiles, like this mother and her daughter. It's fair to say that biblical scholars have performed an array of hermeneutical somersaults to get Jesus out of this mess. Some say the harsh language is intended to be a test of the woman's faith. Others turn to the Greek, suggesting that the translation should not be dog, but little puppy trying to smooth things out by making the woman cute rather than cut down. 
There are scholars who justify Jesus' language as a challenge to the Syrophoenician's economic power, implying that Jesus' emphasis on food for his own people meets a real and present need, and that of people who already eat well only need leftovers, not the main meal. I could go on, and most biblical commentaries do, looking for a way to exonerate Jesus. However, if we take the scriptures at their word that Jesus throws insults and food in this passage, then it is what happens next that is most instructive. It would have been easy to imagine the woman withdrawing. We know that Jesus is received as one who speaks as with authority. He is a man in a man's world, and he has named the heart of his mission, the core of his work on earth, to feed the sheep of Israel. However, as we know, the woman rather than pull away from this place of tension, chooses to raise the stakes and challenge Jesus, seeking not merely to get what she needs, but to redirect Jesus' labor as a whole. To this point in the gospel, most of Jesus' miraculous works have happened in Capernaum, the small Galilean town he spent much of his time in with Peter and his other disciples. When he first crosses to the other side of the Galilee, inhibitions to venture beyond his home turf are accentuated by a storm on the waters that only his power can subdue. His only venture on land into Gentile territory before he meets the Syrophoenician woman in today's gospel is in the region of the Gerasenes, where a demon-possessed man bows at his feet, proclaiming him to be the son of the Most High God. All of this to say, previous to today's encounter in chapter 7, Jesus hasn't got out much. And when he has, whether by calming the storm or being proclaimed by the demoniac, it is his divinity that comes to the fore. This is not, though, where this mother meets him. For her, his divine vocation is not in question. Discovering the fullness of his human vocation is. The challenge the Syrophoenician offers to Jesus is simply that his labor might reflect a more expansive mission to all the people God has made. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs, is the mother's reply. Jesus' own response is simple, yet enigmatic. For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. We don't know exactly why he changes his mind. Was it the woman's faith? Or her rhetorical skill? Or was he just caught up short and appreciated the change of direction? Whatever it was, Jesus' mission does expand after this point. He goes on into the Gentile region of the Decapolis, and heals a man who is mute and deaf, as we've just heard. Then, most symbolic of all, just as he fed 5,000 in Galilee, he feeds another 4,000 in the Decapolis, food for the children of Israel, and then food for those beyond. As unclear as what exactly it is that motivates Jesus' redirection, what is clear? is that if Jesus needed a voice to ask 
how well his labor was aligned to the mission of his life. And perhaps we might do well to give and receive that sort of voice too. So there's the invitation that perhaps we might give and receive words of encouragement and even redirection, not because we believe we are right, but because the expansiveness of the mission of God calls us to. For in the divine economy, no one is left behind, and all of our work and all of our life is intended as an offering to the God who gives all to us. Whatever this Labor Day weekend has in store for you, I hope that you might join me in a spirit of thankfulness to God for the labor of all who help life to flourish on the earth. And as we gain an ever greater sense of how God calls each of us into lives of deep and abundant living, may we ask, as this woman did, for the same fullness of life for all the people of God. Amen.